And that's also a great segue to our next speaker, Marion Tupi. Marion's content is being used for this project sphere. We're packaging that, putting it in the classroom. That's another way where you know, we're trying to uh, reach new audiences and, and do things um, in different ways. So Marion Tupi is our senior fellow in the Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity. He's the editor of humanprogress.org. Marion spent the first 13 years of his life in the Soviet Union's orbit, which makes him more appreciative for, of free markets and liberalism and gives him the superpower of spotting a communist 100 yards away. It's true. In fact, he told me he gets out of bed in the morning with one goal in mind, to fight and spot the watermelons. I said, what do you have against a delicious piece of fruit, Marion? He said, no, no, the watermelons are environmental activists who are green on the outside but red on the inside. <laughs> so he's putting his superpowers to use, at least. Marion's work in recent years is focused on global well-being and showing that mankind and the planet, despite what environmentalist radicals say, are flourishing and improving. He's having a major impact in three ways, all of which are larger priorities for Cato. First, Marion is making arguments with uh, data and compiling them in original ways, but then he's telling stories that attract journalists, academics, students, interested citizens. Visit humanprogress.org or flip through Superabundance, which I hope you'll all have a copy of. Um, a great example is his uh, time price measurement, which we'll watch a video on in a second. Uh, it's being adopted around the globe uh, in various countries to help make the case uh, Marion is, is making and, and that Joan made before. Second, and really importantly, he's building new relationships and reaching people across the political spectrum, a major focus for Cato. On the center left, Harvard psychologist Steven Pinker and Nobel laureate Angus Deaton are on the humanprogress.org advisory board. And former Treasury Secretary Larry Summers recently joined Marion for a Cato forum on superabundance, praising the book and arguing that its approach needs to be widely adapted. On the right, he's influencing people like Bill McGurn of the Wall Street Journal, Jordan Peterson, George Will. Third, the third way Marion's being impactful is that he and the Cato team are producing content that goes beyond white papers and studies. I think this is really important uh, if we're going to reach um, younger generations and, and others. His previous book, 10 Trends Every Smart Person Should Know, broke into Amazon's top 100 books and is Cato's best-selling publication. His videos have been viewed over 1.5 million times online, and he and Jordan Peterson are launching an online course based on superabundance. So speaking of great content, let's watch a short video, and then welcome to the stage, Dr. Marion Tupi. There are now 8 billion people living on the planet. Is there enough room for all of us? Aren't we going to run out of natural resources? How are we going to feed everybody? These are not new questions. Doomsayers have been asking them for at least 200 years. In 1798, an English economist named Thomas Malthus wrote his famous essay on the principle of population. In it, Malthus claimed that population grew exponentially, while resources needed to feed that population grew at a linear rate. The difference between the two growth rates, he argued, must lead to starvation. Malthus was wrong, and not by a little, by a lot. As the population grew, food production improved, and so did almost everything else. Consider the life of a typical American blue-collar worker over the span of a century. 
Using a unit of measurement known as time prices, we can estimate the amount of time someone would have to work to buy a given item. Between 1900 and 2018, the length of time our blue-collar worker had to work to earn enough money to buy a pound of pork fell by 98%, to buy a pound of rice by 97%, to buy a pound of coffee, 94%. While people can't eat rubber, aluminum, or cotton, these commodities are valuable inputs in the production processes that impact the prices of goods and services, and hence the overall standard of living. Their prices fell by 99%, 98%, and 96% respectively, while population of the United States rose from 76 million to 328 million. Famines, which were once common, have disappeared outside of war zones. In much of the world today, it's obesity, not starvation, that is a problem. This relationship between population growth and abundance may seem counterintuitive, but it's true. Remember this chart that so frightened Malthus? The reality looks very different. The more people we have, the more abundance we have. Relative to previous generations, we now live in a world of superabundance, the term that my colleague and co-author, Gail Pooley and I, have coined and used as the title of our book. Thank you very much, Harrison, for that very generous introduction. Really appreciate it, and of course, Thanks to all of you uh, for being here today. Um, last year, the world's population uh, has reached 8 billion people. Is that too few or too many? Opinions differ. The great under-discussed factor in the climate crisis is there, we use too much shit. Climate deniers like to say, there's no population problem. Just look out the window of an airplane. Something about empty space down there. But it's not about space, it's about resources. Humans are already using 1.7 times the resources the planet can support. In 1900, there were less than two billion people on Earth. Now it's approaching eight. We can't just keep going on like this. The world is just too crowded. There are not enough people. I can't emphasize this enough. There are not enough people. Um, and if, I think one of the biggest risks to civilization is the low growth rate uh, uh, and the rapidly declining growth rate. Uh, it, is, it is, and yet so many people, including smart people, think that there are too many people in the world and think that the population is growing out of control. It's completely the opposite. There's scientific consensus that the lives of children are going to be very difficult. And it does lead, I think, young people to have a legitimate question, you know, should is it okay to still have children? So people have been wondering about the relationship between population growth and resource abundance really since antiquity. And as I, know, uh, as I mentioned in the video, uh, it was Thomas Malthus, an English preacher, who in uh, 1798 uh, published his famous essay on population in which he claimed that whereas population grows are, uh, geometrically or exponentially, that's the red line over there, um, population uh, grows, um, uh, rather resources grow in a linear rate and therefore the difference between the two growth rates must by necessity lead to starvation. In 1968, uh, the Stanford University biologist, some of you may be familiar with him from uh, Johnny Carson's show, 
uh, picked up the baton of uh, overpopulation from Malthus in his uh, best-selling book, The Population Bomb. And in that book, uh, Ehrlich wrote, the battle to feed all of humanity is over. In the 1970s, hundreds of millions of people are going to starve to death in spite of any crash programs embarked upon now. Ehrlich scared and scarred generations of Americans, uh, turning some of his ideas into movies, such as the 1973 offering The Soil and Green, in which every time a person dies, he or she is converted into a biscuit called The Soil and Green, which is then fed to the people who are still alive. And note the date at the top of the poster. This was supposed to be New York in 2022. So it's 2023 and we are still not eating one another. Um, I, I picked this because it reminds me of standing in front of uh, olive oil in, in Whole Foods and choosing between normal and virgin and extra virgin and light and Greek and Portuguese and Italian and Californian. So instead of starvation, we really got an abundance of choices. And as uh, the video mentioned, uh, famines have pretty much disappeared from the world outside of war zones. And the question really is, how did that happen? Well, accountants uh, measure resources by counting, by counting them. How much wheat we grow, how many barrels of oil we can drill, how much aluminum we can extract. But measuring quantities does not account for technological breakthroughs, such as, for example, uh, GMO wheat, which delivers bigger harvests on fewer acres of land. Also, uh, measuring uh, of resources does not uh, account for substitutes. So instead of oil-fired power plants, we now have gas-fired powered power plants. And of course, counting of resources does not account for efficiency gains. So a typical can of Coke uh, used to weigh three ounces of tin or aluminum in the 1950s, but today that's down to about half an ounce. So it is much better, therefore, to measure the abundance of resources by looking at prices. If the price of a resource goes up, uh, we can deduce from that that there is a greater scarcity going on. If the price of a resource is going down, then we can deduce that um, the resource is, in fact, becoming much more abundant. And it is in the marketplace uh, that the um, uh, behavior and expectations of 8 billion people are reflected. So in a sense, you can think about the marketplace as a giant calculator providing just-in-time uh, best possible estimate regarding uh, what scares and what is abundant. But which price are we to choose? You will all be familiar with nominal price. Every time you go to a store and buy a loaf of bread, you encounter a nominal price. And, um, uh, we don't, and, and, and those prices change all the time, which is why, as you all know, we have to account for inflation. I love this picture because it's from uh, the hyperinflation period during uh, Germany in 1921-22, when a loaf of bread cost 1,000 billion Reichsmarks. So you know that you have to account for inflation. But there is a problem with both prices and that is they don't account to what is happening in wages. They don't account for rising in wages. How many times have you heard somebody say, oh, when I was a young man, gas cost only 30 cents a gallon? That is very true, but salaries were also much smaller. And that is where time prices, time prices come into the picture. 
time price is calculated by dividing the nominal price of a good that you see in a store by your nominal hourly wage, how much money you are making per hour of labor at that point in time. And that's what gives us a time price. And whereas uh, money prices are measured in dollars and cents, time prices are measured in hours and minutes. Simply put, time price tells you how long you have to work in order to earn enough money to buy something. Time prices, we argue, are the true prices, because while we buy things with money, we pay for them with time, time which we could be spending with our loved ones, playing sports, or what have you. So let's look at one example, one specific example, and that would be the price of bread in the United States between 1980 and 2022. So price, uh, loaf of bread in 1980 cost 50 cents in 1980 dollars. By 2022, the price of bread rose to $1.56, and so bread cost 212% more expensive. That's the kind of headline you may, you may expect to find in an American newspaper, and that's because they don't account for inflation. These are nominal price differentials. In 1980, $0.50, $0.2022, $1.56. Okay, so then we adjust for inflation. What happens? Well, 50 cents in 1980 is equivalent to $1.81 in 2022, and we already know that in 2022, bread cost $1.56, and therefore we can say that bread actually got 13.8% cheaper after you adjust for inflation. That, of course, is if you believe government statistics. So, how do we calculate the time price? Well, we know that bread was 50 cents, and we know that the hourly wage of a blue-collar worker, somebody manufacturing, making a car, was $6.57. So that tells us that he or she would have to work four minutes in order to buy a loaf of bread. By 2022, bread rose to $1.56, but hourly wage has also increased to $26.87. So our worker now has to work only three minutes in order to buy a loaf of bread. And that means that bread got 25% cheaper and we don't have to adjust for inflation. So remember that as long as income is increasing at a faster pace than prices, you are becoming better off. What do we find? This is the living standard or estimating part of the living standard of an American blue collar worker between 1850, just before the Civil War and 2018. The time price of rice decreases by 99.1%. And that means that for the same amount of work, which got our manufacturing worker one pound of rice in 1850, he now gets 111 pounds of rice in 2018. Pork decreases by almost 99%, so instead of one pound of pork, same amount of labor gets him or her 75 pounds of pork. And on average, time prices fell by 98.3%, which means that instead of one unit in this basket of commodities that we looked at in the book, you can now get 59. Let's now look at the world. This is uh, moving beyond the United States, looking at, at the world. And what we found is that during the period of globalization between 1980 and 2018, um, the average time price of 50 commodities that we looked at fell by 70, almost 72%, uh, which means that instead of one unit, you can now get 3.52. Now, some might ask, is that fast enough? Is it fast enough that over a period of 38 years, instead of one pound of pork, now you can get almost seven? And what I would argue is that 
People need to understand economic history. They need to understand that for thousands of years, standards of living were completely flat throughout the world. Whatever your standard of living was, your parents and your grandparents' standard of living was, your children and your grandchildren's standard of living was. And here, over a period of 38 years, people have seen their standard of living increase by three and a half, uh, by, by, by close to four. And so my argument would be that never before in human history has as much been accomplished in such a little time. So in our book, we looked at 18 different data sets. Over there, in the, in the previous slides, you just looked at different commodities. But here, we looked at 18 different data sets containing hundreds of commodities, including food, finished products, raw materials, fuels, even some services. And in each case, we found that uh, resource abundance has increased. But it gets better than that. What we found was that um, resource abundance increased at a faster pace than population, a relationship which we call superabundance. So on the x-axis, you have uh, resource abundance increase. On the y-axis, uh, sorry, on the x-axis, you have increase in population. On the y-axis, you have increase in resource abundance. And you can see that in every one of these cases, um, abundance has grown at a faster pace than population. So that is what we call superabundance. And as was mentioned in the video, on the left-hand side, you've got the graph that so frightened Malthus, and on the, on the right-hand side, you have the reality. In fact, resources are increasing at a faster pace than population, and the gap, the gap between population growth and resource abundance growth, that, we argue, is the new knowledge produced by the human mind. So, in our model, the process of knowledge creation starts with the overall population. Data shows that only a small fraction of population innovates. Therefore, the bigger the population, the greater the chance that somebody will come up with a useful innovation which will make lives easier for the rest of us. Such as, for example, a Scottish pastor, Patrick Bell, who invented the agricultural reaping machine, which made wheat harvest easier in 1828. The next step in the process of knowledge creation takes place in the marketplace where inventions are constantly innovated, improved, um, leading to innovations uh, such as the modern combine harvester, which helps to make our supermarkets burst with varieties of cheap and affordable bread. Now, of course, population size is not enough to bring about superabundance. China has been the world's most populous country for about 2,000 years, but until recently the Chinese were dirt poor only after the economic liberalization in the 1970s, the creative potential of the Chinese people was unleashed, leading to tremendous appreciation in wealth. So the question really is, can superabundance continue? Can we grow our human population and at the same time become richer? Our book talks about an infinitely bountiful planet, which may seem counterintuitive given that the world really has only a finite number of atoms. We are not growing atoms. The atoms of zinc, the atoms of copper, we are not adding to them. There is a finite number of atoms in the world. And so most people would probably agree with the American environmentalist Kenneth Balding, who famously said that anyone who believes in indefinite growth on a physically finite planet is either mad or an economist. But from a wealth-creating perspective, the number of atoms actually matters very little. This is Lamborghini Huracan worth quarter of a million dollars, 
and this is Lamborghini Huracan worth $5,000. Note that the number of atoms in both cars is pretty much the same, but they've been arranged differently. <laughs> the first arrangement was intelligent, the second arrangement was chaotic. So by arranging atoms in an increasingly intelligent way, that's where the new knowledge comes into it, we can get ever more value from the same atoms or for previ from previously useless atoms. Consider something as simple as a grain of sand. It's been lying around for billions of years. Then some four and a half thousand years ago, someone figured out that if you heat sand to over 3,000 degrees Fahrenheit, um, you can turn sand into glass beads, which the ladies used for decoration um, five millennia ago. Then sometime later, somebody realized that you can turn glass into jars and uh, later into window panes. With every step of the way, the value produced from a grain of sand has increased. Today, of course, we are using glass in microchips, which massively increases our productivity and wealth. So to get an infinite value from a finite number of atoms, all that's required is new knowledge. Economics, then, is not about atoms. Economics is about knowledge, and knowledge is potentially limitless. The world is a, closed piano, uh, is a closed system in the same way that a piano is a closed system. The instrument only has 88 keys, but they can be played in an infinite variety of ways. And the same applies to our planet. The Earth's atoms may be fixed, but the, but the possible combinations of those atoms are practically infinite. What matters then are not physical limits of the planet, but human freedom to experiment and reimagine the use of the resources that we have. Thank you very much. Okay, so we have time for questions. Forgive me for not standing. Um, I'm a medical doctor of homeopathy and a natural physician. And how do we turn this model of abundance and wealth to abundance and health? The foods that we have now that are increasingly available, I agree, it's wonderful. People are rarely starving. But it is with genetically modified uh, foods with high fructose corn syrup, etc. And while I'm definitely not a liberal, I would like us as a world to be eating better. But the profit uh, there is great, but largely unaffordable, or unaffordable rather, for people. Um, how do we get to that goal of not only feeding people, but feeding them to health? Thank you. Well, Obviously, people keep on living longer, which suggests that we are not poisoning ourselves with uh, food or um, uh, toxic water or toxic air or whatever. Um, life expectancy keeps on increasing, not just in the United States, but around the world, after you adjust for, um, obviously, what happened during COVID. So um, I, I would say that it's a, it's a difficult argument to be making that, um, that we are actually being somehow poisoned by food. Now, uh, obesity is obviously a problem. Uh, I, I agree with that. 
Um, and uh, you will note that uh, wealthy Americans eat better diets than poor Americans. So getting wealthy Americans, uh, sorry, poor Americans to be richer uh, would be one way to do it, where they can spend food uh, which, which may, be, um, uh, may be better, but therefore more expensive. Uh, but remember that for uh, the first 300,000 years of our existence as homo sapiens on this earth, the issue was hunger. Uh, starvation and famine, so it is not surprising that our genes uh, um, have evolved in such a way um, that, uh, that make us gluttonous. Um, so uh, th there, there is something to it, um, but I think that uh, as people become wealthier, they will also be able to afford better diet. And yes, sir. Yeah, an observation uh, and a question. Uh, you know, you, you reach a point in your life where your, your mind doesn't open as easily as it used to. And um, I read the book, and it was, it was a mind opener. And, um, and it particularly um, so because not just a clever idea, but all of the, the rigor that went into supporting, you know, building up the idea. And my question is, is well, uh, Harrison talked about some of the uh, attraction and visibility that these ideas are getting. Um, you look at the at the American Academy where ideas ought to be, you'd think, uh, debated, and yet there are uh, increasingly, uh, you know, conformity tests that have to be passed before you can land a faculty position, and there are increasingly orthodoxies that you have to profess to believe in, and. How, does, how, does, how do ideas like this get debated in scale across that academic environment, or does that matter? Um, I would say that, um, well, the deeper problem here is the question of freedom of speech um, at, at, at universities. In the final chapter of the book, we do talk about dangers that can prevent superabundance from continuing, and one of them is free speech. Now, free speech, is very important on a micro level, which is to say that I should be able to communicate my thoughts to you so that we can cooperate in order to come up with a new innovation uh, that we can then profit from in the market that makes the lives of our fellow human beings better. And I call this the micro level um, importance of freedom of speech. But then, then there's also, uh, freedom of speech is also important at a macro level, which is to say uh, being able to talk uh, openly about which direction your society is going and saying we shouldn't be heading in that particular direction. The reason why communism has lasted as long as it did, uh, first 13 years of my life I was spent in communist Czechoslovakia, was precisely because we were not able to point out the obvious, which is that the, the shops were empty and um, nothing worked, right? So, so freedom of speech is vital for those, uh, for those reasons. Um, um, and, and how do you do it? I'm actually quite kind of optimistic about American education in the long run. Um, the, the combination of um, uh, artificial intelligence and virtual reality, for example, will be able to, for $50, maybe less, transport a student into ancient Athens to have a conversation, intelligent conversation with Socrates or Aristotle. Um, you will be able to get uh, courses uh, for free online uh, from uh, the world's best um, uh, academics. Steven Pinker's first course, or first year course on psychology is available for free for anybody who wants to see it. Uh, we are going to have massive competition in terms of higher education. New universities are being built, one in Texas, others online, um, where all of these dissident academics can go. And of course, at some point in time, uh, those, those universities 
which do not prize um, diversity of opinion, uh, those universities which are um, re-education re camps uh, will simply lose their cachet. Uh, parents will refuse to spend $100,000 a year to send their children there, and then they will send them somewhere else. Um, and, and so I, would, uh, I, I think that competition will take care of this in the long run, perhaps even medium run. In the back. Can, can you just wait for the mic? Jerry Fickenshire, a lot of talk uh, in an optimistic manner, and I agree with everything. I wonder, are we surrounded by forces, by the multiple isms, environmentalism, communism, socialism, et cetera, et cetera, that really want to stop all this? And if working with them does not uh, is not equivalent to a Faustian bargain. I constantly remember Faust, the Goethe's Faust, who made a deal with the devil. That did not come out too good. Um, well, I don't, I don't know what you mean by working with them. Um, I mean, we'll, we'll, we'll talk to anyone. Uh, but in terms of these isms, yes, um, the latest one is the degrowth theory, which currently is still being isolated in universities by and large, uh, but like, um, like so many viruses, it can always spill into the society as a whole. So this new idea, degrowth, is actually to limit people's consumption uh, and to actually bring it down uh, to, to make society poorer. And um, uh, it's being seriously debated in academia. I'm deeply worried about that. Um, you can see insinuations of that in many different countries. In France, President Macron, for example, uh, wants to abolish all internal flights uh, so that people can only travel by, by, by trains and things like that. So we have to be uh, on the lookout for, uh, against the degrowth theorizers mm -hmm. and understand that uh, modernity is about growth. It is uh, not everybody is enjoying very high standards of living. Uh, median, um, median income per household in the United States is only um, uh, Sixty or seventy thousand dollars. So even in the United States, uh, we can think about a lot of people who could be much richer. Let alone in uh, the rest of the world, where people are still genuinely poor. So uh, I'm pro-growth, and um, and I hope that uh, we uh, at Cato and our allies can stop the degrowth theory from destroying American prosperity. Thank you very much.